If you're visiting, again, welcome. It's uh, great to have you here. And this year we have studied through a pretty well-known book of the Bible in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, fourth book of the New Testament. We just wrapped that up last week. And um, I kind of have a little grab bag of free Sundays here to pick and choose where I want to. So I'm going to be jumping around a little bit. But this morning we're going to be in Romans 11, beginning in verse 33. And again, the text is right there in the order of worship. Uh, summer has not officially begun, technically. That's not till I meant to look this up before I stood up here. June 21st, 22nd, something like that. Summer solstice. But uh, as far as how we really li- live life, it really kicks in this week. Uh, t- you get the long weekend, Memorial Day tomorrow. A lot of school-aged kids will finish school this week and, and only have half days this week. Love the half day. Love the half day. Because children know full well we really can't get anything hard done and they will let us play, hopefully in a structured way. Uh, school wraps up and, and June, begin, June begins this week. Wow. So, so for all practical purposes, for how we live life, this is when summer starts. So this Sunday is sort of nestled right at the, the cusp of, of summer. And I want you to think about this. Summer is, is wonderful. And one of the best things about it, besides whatever particular things you enjoy, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more as we go, is the promise of some break. Now, not everybody has the same vacation schedule, but a lot of you, maybe in the very near future, maybe this week, are going to take some much-needed vacation time. Now, here's the interesting thing about vacation time. Uh, That is something that the Bible would commend. I mean, God was the one who built into creation that there's a time to work. He models this from the beginning of the Bible. There's a time to work, and then there's a time to to cease working. And he builds that into the Ten Commandments. So taking a break from work and resting is is a wonderful God-given thing. But it's usually in those times as we move toward a vacation that we are really well-positioned to be self-absorbed. You know? Because as you get closer to a break, at least I know I do this, you start checking out and going sort of to your happy place. Now, your happy place might be a lake. It might be the mountains. It might be the coast. It might be a pool with friends. It might be Asheville. It might be somewhere way far away. I don't know. But as you go towards your happy place, you know, you start thinking about, and then when I get to my happy place, what will I do? And what will I eat? You know, when I sit in that chair, my favorite chair, when I sit and watch the sunset, what will I eat? And if I take my little nano, what will be on my nano when I sit there and put the little buds in my ears? Um, Who will I talk to and what will my day look like? And again, in and of themselves, those aren't bad questions, but we're kind of postured to think that this is going to be me time. And what I wanted to do is we're at this Sunday, right, right nestled in there when this is about to start, is to look at a doxology. Now, a doxology, you won't find that word in the Bible, but you'll find a lot of doxologies. It's a bursting out of praise to God because He's God. It's giving Him glory. You know, what I do at the end of the, of the service is not a doxology. It's a benediction. That's, that's God pronouncing His blessing 
on His people through whoever's pronouncing it. But a doxology is us pronouncing a reflected blessing to Him. I want to place the the doxology that I'm about to read before I read it. This is in Romans. A lot of people would say Romans is the Apostle Paul's masterpiece. But what's amazing about where this is located is it's at the end of chapter 11, right before chapter 12. Now, why is that important? He didn't write it with chapters and verses, but that's how we break it down. The first 11 chapters of Romans are some of the deepest, most profound doctrine that you could ever tackle. And biblical scholars who can read ancient Hebrew and New Testament Greek like the newspaper and have studied it all their lives never feel like they get to the bottom of it. And they don't. Eleven chapters worth of that. I mean, he covers the scope of just reality itself. And then when he goes into chapter 12, he says, Therefore... And that is him giving a, a, you know, waving a red flag to say, all right, in light of everything that went before here, what does that mean for us? Eleven chapters of profound doctrine, and now we're going to get into profound application. The so what. But right there, at that transition, comes a doxology. And you know, Paul did not sit and write Romans. We know that from the text of Romans. He dictated to a guy named Tertius. And so, you know, you picture like maybe here's Paul pacing back and forth. There's Tertius at a desk or or writing on his knee, everything that Paul says. And Paul's gone through all this doctrine, and it's as if he stops and just goes, you know, Tertius, God is awesome. I mean, he's unbelievable. One commentator that I love, a minister named John Stott, he said that it's as if analysis and argument just broke down and turned into adoration. And so as we're sort of positioned at a time in the year where we we could really give ourselves over to, what do I want and what am I going to do and what's going to fulfill me and what's the break that I want? I want to stop and listen and park in a doxology. Romans 11, beginning in verse 33. We're going to concentrate on the first half of verse 36, but let's read this section. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we who collapse in on our own wants and needs, desires, schedules, fantasies, would you now place doxology in our heart through your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said, I I want to park in the first half of verse 36. But as we do this, I want you to bear something in mind. This is going to be very important as we move ahead. When Paul says this, he is not saying, I want you to live your life, recipients of this letter in Rome, I want you to live your life as if all things are from God. 
And I want you to aspire to live as if all things are through Him and to Him. He does not say that. He doesn't push them to aspire to something. He says, this is reality. That in reality, in this universe, from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Now, we can't exhaust that here. But let's unpack that a little bit, phrase by phrase, all right? From Him are all things. From God are all things. One of the oldest questions philosophers have ever asked is, why is there something rather than nothing? And there could have been nothing. But there's something. Why is that? You know, this is the kind of question that the guy, you know, like the sophomore guy that you knew in your intro to philosophy class, you know, who journaled a lot, you know, this is the kind of stuff he was talking about. Um, He meant, well, this is how Scripture begins, answering that question. From Him are all things. Now, especially if you're here this morning and you're, you're a churched person and you grew up and you read Genesis 1 and, and you know that story, stay engaged because this is where you could easily check out and go, okay, this is where he's going to list off galaxies and nebulae and he's going to talk about how far the nearest star is and blah, blah, blah. Okay, stay with me. I want you to think about all things being from God in terms of the summer, in terms of the things that you're looking forward to. One of the things that I look forward to in the summer are just some of the foods that I only eat in the summer. I'm a regular at the Saturday market on Main Street on Saturday mornings, and one of my favorite things to get are fresh fruits. And what's lovely about it is that when you buy local strawberries or local blueberries, besides those just being delicious, is the fact that the ones that are locally grown have a particular taste to them. I mean, that's one of the greatest things about buying local stuff. Now, think about this. When you eat a locally grown strawberry or a locally grown blueberry, and you can taste the difference between that one and the grocery store, or one that, you know, the strawberry that you bought in February. Or if you're looking forward to when you go on this place that you love to go every summer and you're going to get seafood, hopefully not from the Gulf Coast, and how it tastes, where is that from? I mean, in a secondary way, it's from your taste buds. But besides the fruit or the fish, where are the taste buds from? From Him are all things. Maybe this summer is when you're going to get some time with a, a favorite friend that you have to go long stretches without seeing. And this may be your friend that can make you laugh like no other friend can. You know, every, usually everybody has a friend that just in this unique way they can put their finger on your tickle bone. Do you know the friend I mean? Is that, you know, I, I, there's lots of people that I can laugh with, but there's just that friend that can just send me over the edge. I was with someone like that, a friend of mine, last week. And it's one of my favorite experiences. Where does friendship or humor come from? It's from Him. Or think about this. Maybe what you want to do is, I don't want to be with anybody. I mean, i got friends, but I want to be alone. 
uh, I want to sit with my book and then not read it. Okay, so I'm going to take it so I don't feel guilty, but I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to like place it. It's there. And, um, but I want to be and I want to look out on my favorite view. And maybe for you that is very particular. Uh, those mountains from that spot, that beach, that lake. What, why do those proportions make us feel a certain way? Why does the majesty of mountains affect us? Why, why does the way the ocean is not... The ocean is not really majestic, it's sublime. Where does that come from? From Him are all things. Through Him are all things. What, what does that mean? From is pretty straightforward. What does it mean that... This was the hardest part of this passage for me. What does it mean that all things are through Him. Uh, do you remember in school learning about deism? That a lot of our forefathers were not what we would call Bible-believing Christians. They were deists. Some weren't, but a lot were. Deism, is usually, the popular explanation is that it's a view that all reality, all the universe is like a clock. God made the clock. God wound the clock up. He set it up on the mantle, and now it's running. He's not really relational. He's not really personally involved. He's not tinkering with it. He did make the clock, but now it runs. That, that's deism. All right. A deist can say all things are from God, but on through him, that's where Christians and deism part company. This is what theologians call providence. It means this. God's not just the origin of everything. He's the cause in a way, He's the means. Now, what, what does that mean? Uh, think about it this way. We tend to think that if something exists, it then has the power to keep on existing. In other words, if God made this red clay and made the sand and made the ability to make fire, to put the clay and the sand in, in a kiln and cook it, then that's the brick and the material is from God, but the brick just keeps existing on its own. That's deism. And all the other bricks, for what it's worth. Nothing exists on its own. Nothing keeps going on its own. It's not just that God makes the starting point, it's everything that unfolds. One time the Apostle Paul... Talk about a challenging environment to speak. He was in Athens, Greece, speaking at the Areopagus. And he's speaking in front of, you know, card-carrying full-time philosophers. And this is not the sophomore that journaled in your class that, like, just started learning philosophy 30 minutes ago. They have cut their teeth on this their whole lives. And he can't just stand up in front of them and say, hey, you know in Genesis where it says blah, blah, blah? Or you know that part in Isaiah that says blah, blah, blah? They do not know those texts. So he has to tell the story of the gospel in the most accessible ways. And as he's explaining reality, he quotes one of their poets. He quotes a guy named Epimenides. And he quotes this phrase where Epimenides is describing Zeus. And you may have heard this phrase and thought this is just a verse in the Bible. 
But this is something that Paul borrowed from Greek poetry and said, Zeus cannot fulfill this, but the God that I'm telling you about, my God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is true of him. And the, the quote was, in him we live and move and have our being. And this is as practical as last night. Why did our immune system fight off things? Well, because God put that in our bodies and uh, that's something that we're blessed with and we don't ever want that to get sick. But how did it do it? Who ran it? Who orchestrated it? Who oversaw it and directed it? You know, when we sleep, this is why control freaks have trouble sleeping. When you sleep, you're out of control. Through Him are all things. Now, let me make this practical, again, with sort of an eye to the summer. Listen to this from the Psalms. This uh, this is just two verses from Psalm 104. And picture how this could be a wonderful scene from a summer vacation. Here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 104. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. If you love tomato sandwiches, like my wife loves tomato sandwiches, how does that happen? And wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Now, this is as real and as practical as someone sitting down to a table this summer, if they could look out on some kind of beautiful outdoor scene and they've got their tomato sandwich and they've got their glass of wine and as they enjoy it and they feel refreshed and they feel grateful and even, and I'm not trying to be provocative, but this is what the psalm says, even as the wine makes them feel better, how is that happening? It's not just that God made wheat and God made cattle and God made grapes and God made tomatoes. But through Him are all things. The psalmist says, you cause all that to happen as it's happening. By the way, the only exception on these two prepositions, from and through, in the Bible, is sin. The only exceptions in Scripture acknowledged that sin is not from Him and it's not through Him, which makes us wonder, is sin then really even a thing or is it just a parasite on real things? Taking the real things, love, relationships, food, sex, good ambition, and twisting the good things. All the good things are from and through Him, but sin is not. But it's this last one that's the rub. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And that means that God's not just the origin and He's not just the cause. He's the goal of everything. He's the the end. He's the telos of everything. What is downtown Greenville for? Him. What is the revitalization of downtown for? 
him. What is summer for? Him. What am I for? My body and my mind and my emotions and my will. Him. Now, this should raise a question in our minds. You know, when we know someone that thinks everything is about them, we would call that person an egomaniac or a narcissist. You know, this is the classic, you know, enough about me, what do you think about me? Or what my favorite comedian calls the me monster. You know, that when you're, when you're in, a, in conversation or in a party, that, you know, they start talking, but every story is hijacked and flown over back to them. The me monster. Is God an egomaniac? He says, everything is for me. You're for me. Your family's for me. Your bank account is for me. Your city is for me. All the galaxies are for me. Probably the best reflection ever done on this, at least in English, is by Jonathan Edwards. And this man sitting up in New England said this. If someone loves you, then what they would want for you would be that you have all the goodness and beauty possible. And that you be protected from falsehood and lies and that you have as much truth as possible. And what that means is that if you're going to have the very best on all fronts for you, you must have God. Because He is where all truth and beauty and goodness comes from. And it's not secondhand with Him. It is original with Him. But then Edwards goes further and says this. He says that in the same way that when you enjoy something, like you're, you're at an incredible meal with a friend or a relative, and you take the bites, it's not like, don't look at me, I'm eating, I'm eating. Don't, don't talk to me. I, don't make eye contact with me, I'm eating. This is incredible. Is as you take the bites, you want to look over and pull them in. Or think about this, the difference when you're watching a funny movie by yourself, and you kind of chuckle you know, sitting in the love seat by yourself, but you get in a room full of your best friends and watch that same movie, and there's just an explosion. That the bringing others into it, they don't just participate, it amplifies the enjoyment of it. And that God, as He enjoys Himself, as God enjoys Himself, as the source of all truth and beauty and goodness, it is love and kindness for Him to want to bring as many people possible in, not only to share in it, but to see the joy amplified. That's why all things are to Him. Now, table that for a second. Table everything we just said. When I was a campus minister in my first job in Mississippi... Uh, I worked with a young woman one time, and I, just, I really liked this young woman. She was extremely perceptive, and in a lot of ways, she could see through kind of fake Bible Belt subculture at this campus. But the dark underbelly of that is sometimes the most perceptive people are the most cynical. 
And she was very cynical, smart as a whip, but cynical. And one way I learned that that manifested itself is that when she would go to the P.O. box and check her mail, um, she would often find letters or a card from her grandmother. And she told me this. She said that when she, when she got these letters and notes from her grandmother, she would always do the same thing. She would open it, and if there was a check, she would take the check and throw the letter away. Or if she opened it up and there was no check, she would just throw the whole thing away. Now, let me ask you this. When you just heard that, with whom do you identify? Probably our first instinct as we went, ugh, was to identify with the grandmother and say, you know, I've had people do that to me, want me for my kindness, but not want me. The message of Scripture is that we're the girl. That God... I will take all things being from you. Great. You know, whether or not I understand all the creation account, just however you did it, sure. All things are from you. I want the things. But I don't know that I'm going to say that all things are through you or that they're to you. And as we go into the summer, I want you to consider this. Everybody in this room has objects for all those prepositions. And God might be the object on the first preposition, but it's the other two that are problematic. Did God make everything? Sure. Yeah, God made everything. Um, how do all things happen through my hard work? If anything's really going to happen, it happens through my hard work. That's why I don't delegate. Nobody does anything right except me. Unto my family. All things happen through my control and discipline to my fulfillment. And what Scripture makes really clear is that if you make any other thing an object of any of those prepositions, that is what the Bible calls an idol. And that is why you might be talking with a friend who's a parent. And this friend might be extremely open-minded about, you know, none of us really understand God. And none of us can really say what God is or isn't. I mean, we're all kind of on our separate journeys. Very open, very open-minded, very inclusive, very tolerant. But you say one thing about their parenting, and they are ready to decapitate you. And that is instructive because that is showing us something. You have messed with a deity. All of us, right this moment, and all of us through the summer, and all the days that God gives us, we will have objects to all those prepositions. But if they're idols, it hurts us, and we're living a lie because all things are not from these idols and through them and to them. And it's the very thing that God must deal with at the end. If this world is to be made right and purified, the idols must be cast down. How do you break it when someone or something else is the object of the prepositions? And I'm going to say this briefly, and if this is new to you, I hope you'll come back. 
because this is what we talk about all the time, and I think you would find resources to help you think about this deeper and longer. But let me just say this. The only thing that's going to break us having the wrong objects of the prepositions is to see the new creation. Did you know there's another creation? There's the cosmos, there's earth, the mountains, the oceans, all the stuff that we're looking forward to this summer. But here's what the New Testament says. Now listen to this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's as big a deal when a man or a woman in this room believes in Jesus as Genesis 1. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now listen to the next statement. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. Now I feel like I'm having to go from zero to 60 here. But here's what that's saying. Why is that baby in Bethlehem? Why is he there? If he's come to fix everything, why is he there? Surely he's not from the God whose mail we're opening and keeping the checks and throwing what he says away. That baby is there from God. How is that teenager in Nazareth doing everything that I don't do? How is he so flawlessly living the life of a man who really understands that from him and through him and to him are all things and doing it for people who don't believe that, doing it on their behalf, how is he there? Through God. Not just that God provided him, he is God. Living the obedience I can't live for me and then bearing the punishment for me. What's the net result of him doing this? Is that now my life is a new creation in a way that mountains and oceans aren't. To him. Guess what? The whole rest of the book of Romans is about that. The very next passage in Romans, chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, in light of all this stuff that you've heard, present your bodies as living sacrifices unto God. Is that going to suppress who I really am? Is, is that, is that, if, if I really buy into that, is that going to kill the real me? That I'm a God person and I kind of stop being myself. Well, I want to end with this. Uh, a book about beer. I don't know how much, I don't know how all the alcohol got in the sermon this morning. It just kind of worked out that way. And you have to let the chips fall where they may sometimes. But I'm about halfway through a book about Guinness. And it's called The Search for God and Guinness, a biography of the beer that changed the world. And the uh, um, for our first-time visitors, I just would say thanks for coming. We hope you find a church home <laughs> eventually one of these days as you never come back. The, the man that really put Guinness on the map as a business was not the founder, Arthur Guinness, but it was his son, the next Arthur Guinness. They'll call, they call him the second Arthur Guinness. Now, 
if you want a snippet of what this man was like, listen to what he wrote to his sons toward the end of his life. The, I'm telling you, the continued good account of our business calls for much thankfulness to Almighty God. Where, where does the ability to do this come from? Where do the customers come from? Where do great customers uh, in Dublin come from? Where do our employees come from? From God. While we humbly ask for the infinitely higher blessings of His grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, surely it becomes me to speak of the Lord's patience and long-suffering towards one so utterly evil and sinful. And to, I'm about to cry reading this. To pray that I might be enabled through grace to live every hour under the teaching of the Holy Spirit, patiently abiding His time for calling me to that place of everlasting rest the purchase of the precious blood of the Lamb of God for saved sinners. And it is agreed that he, probably more than anyone else, he didn't grow the business the most, but he instilled what we would call the business culture of Guinness more than anyone, the DNA of what it was like as a business. What was it like? Because his perspective was this. If God gave us the ability to do this in Dublin... We are to be a blessing to Dublin. If God gave us employees that enable us to do this, if that's from God and through Him, we should take care of these employees. Listen to this. Now, that's the early 1800s. A Guinness worker during the 1920s, so fast forward, enjoyed full medical and dental care, massage services. This is like better than Google, you know, 100 years before Google. Reading rooms, subsidized meals, a company-funded pension, subsidies for funeral expenses, educational benefits, sports facilities, free concerts, lectures, entertainment, and a guaranteed two pints of Guinness beer a day. Right now, if real life was like cartoons where thought clouds were over people's heads, there's no telling what the thought clouds would say. You know. um, pull back in. When, when the second Arthur Guinness died, the city of Dublin said, we lost our greatest citizen. A bunch of his descendants were ministers. In the, in the DNA of that of that business, Guinness, is built in charity, care for the poor, coming alongside the oppressed. Where did it come from? Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what you'd want for a city, a business, a person? It was when a man was captivated, not just by creation in general, but by the new creation that from him and through him and to Him are all things. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we'll end by asking You, You who have all power, what we asked at the first, and that is, would You put into selfish hearts, hearts that have imploded in on ourselves, would you put in us doxology? Would you remind us of the glories of the new creation if we've already received it? 
would you give us the glories of the new creation if we have not? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.